We're working our way through 2 Samuel, and I thought it would be helpful as we work through 2 Samuel to also look at some of the Psalms that David writes from the specific experiences we see happening in 2 Samuel. Right now we're in 2 Samuel chapter 16, and we've seen David flee the city of Jerusalem from his own son, Absalom. And uh, essentially we, we saw him leave with great weeping and sadness and uncertainty. We also saw him surrounded by, by friends. And, and Psalm 3 is born out of that experience. Uh, this, this time in his life where there's great uncertainty and incredible distress and his life and his family and his leadership is shaken and his family. And he writes Psalm 3 to which we turn to tonight. Psalm 3, the scripture says, a Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God, Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people, Selah. Let's pray together. Lord, I do pray that you would affect us tonight by the power of your word and your spirit. That God, you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your law. That God, your spirit would teach us. That you would teach us, Lord. And God, that we would comprehend your truth. That we'd be challenged and affected and changed by it. The Lord would be encouraged in prayer, in singing, in truth, especially in the context of distress, the reality of life that we find David in when he describes Psalm 3 to us. So give us wisdom, O Lord, and give us a heart to obey and live out the wisdom that we read here. God, we just pray that you would powerfully attend the preaching and teaching of your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the first psalm that has a title, a psalm of David. The word psalm refers, is a musical word, something like we would akin to a song. It's a song of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So this is also the first psalm that gives us a context to, to when David wrote this, this, this trying time. Now, possibly not pinned exactly like in that moment. Maybe he's reflecting back on the moment. I don't know. But it it's, describes his demeanor, the state of his faith. I believe how he endured, what he's thinking about, what he's going through mentally and in his heart when he's fleeing from his son, Absalom. This, this I think, helps us and instructs us in how to face distress which obviously is one of the main themes of the Psalms. Over and over again in the Psalms, you get a model of a song or a prayer, oftentimes in the context of difficulty and distress because it's such a real part of life. 
So we have a large book of the Bible containing the songs for God's people, many of them born in the context of difficulty, which again is just the reality of life. In Psalm 3, we see how a faithful man of God faces distress, which all of us will need if we're going to be faithful. We have here a solid example of how a sinner who's dealing with the consequences of his sins faces the distresses that those sins cause in his life. And you see the theme that emerges very quickly in the first two verses. Oh Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul. David emphasizes the, the large number of enemies around him. There's deceivers around him like Absalom, his own son. It's terrible enough when someone deceives you, but your own son, your beloved son, who's set at your table, lies and uses deception to steal the hearts of the people. And behind David's back, saying untrue things about David and his rule to win the people over through subterfuge. There's also defectors, like a man in David's court, one of his closest counselors, a man named Ahithophel, has betrayed David. There's also detractors. This is the last passage we looked at in 2 Samuel 16, Shimei one of the descendants of Saul, throwing rocks at David and the mighty men. What gall! This is the king. God is installed. And here's this guy, uh, I think it's one of Joab's brothers, calls him a dead dog of a man, throwing rocks. This is one of the things that happens is cowards are emboldened whenever the king is down. And it's that kind of time in David's life. He is really down. His family's a wreck. His son's betrayed him. He's got betrayals in his kingly court. He's down, and now the enemies come out of the woodwork. He's disgraced. He's disgraced because of his public sin, and essentially they're piling on. And here we get a picture of how he handles all that. First of all, to face distress in faith, you confess your trouble to God. That's what David does here in the first two verses. He essentially just describes what's going on to God. He says, again, obviously we know this is not to inform God. This is rather to, I believe, help us get the pain that we're feeling and experiencing out. This is where oftentimes prayer is not for the purpose of informing God. It's more for helping us. And you find this often in the Psalms. You find that the psalmist just unloading, here's what's going on. Here's the reality of what I'm experiencing and how I'm feeling. The Psalms are so helpful, they're so honest. They're not this facade. Many are my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, and look what they're saying of David's soul. There's no salvation for him in God, right? I mean, obviously, if you you look at what's happened to David, there's no salvation for him. And you gotta be careful with this word salvation in the Psalms and in the Old Testament. We're, we're like, we, we typically, when we hear the word salvation, we think of the salvation of the soul through Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, and that's right. And sometimes it means that in the Old Testament, too, the salvation of the soul through forgiveness of sins, but not always. The word, especially in the Psalms, oftentimes can simply mean deliverance from the difficulty that I'm going through. So just keep that in mind when you see that word. 
Sometimes it means that. Probably likely here, the idea is David's dead. He's done for. Now let me show you what, the way I think Psalm 3 is structured. Okay? Here's the way I think the psalm works. At the end of verse 2, this is what the enemies are saying. There is no salvation for him in God. But then look at what he, David prays in verse 7. Save me, O oh my God. So the people are saying there's no salvation for him. David prays, save me, O oh God. And then look at the confession in verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I think that's what this text is about. I think that, that forms the framework of Psalm 3. What the people are saying, which is false, how David responds to that with prayer, asking God for, for salvation, and then his confession at the end that salvation belongs to the Lord. It's not for them to say. It's for God to save. I commit my trust and my life and my salvation to God. As we saw his attitude in first, 2 Samuel 16, the Lord sees fit to save me. If the Lord sees fit to bring me back, he'll do it. So we confess our trouble to God. I think it's also wise not to listen to what foes say. When there's a majority of foes around you, it's not wise to listen to what they say. Just because they're in the majority does not mean they are correct or right. They're not in this case. There is no salvation for him in God. That is wrong. And that is false. That's God's prerogative, not theirs. This is unwise people looking at mere worldly circumstances and making foolish judgments. Usually slanted against the person, slandering them. So we don't listen to our foes. And it may be hard for us to relate to, to thinking about being surrounded by foes. But I mean, for one thing, I don't know if you've noticed, but the culture in which we live has become more and more hostile to the faith. Every indicator is that it will just continue to trend in that direction. Furthermore, there are Christians all over the world that are surrounded by real enemies. There are many countries in the world where Christianity is illegal and Christians are persecuted. If a woman becomes a Christian in Saudi Arabia, she is beheaded. So there are many places around the world where to be a Christian means to be surrounded by foes. You confess your trouble to God. Secondly, you confess truth about God. To face distress, to endure distress, to have faith through distress, not only do you confess your trouble, but you confess the truth. And we see this in verses 3 to 6. Look at verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You notice they're saying there's no salvation for him. David says, but you, O Lord, in contrast to what they say, you're a shield. That we confess truth about God. We say these things about God. First of all, he is a shield. What does a shield do? It protects. A shield is one of the most important pieces of equipment for a warrior on a battlefield. In fact, in that day and time, you see with the example of Goliath, Goliath had a a person whose full-time job was shield-bearer. This is famous warriors had a person who would hold their shield for them and block for them while they unleashed their craft on the battlefield. And David likens that person to the Lord. The Lord protects me. The Lord defends me. The Lord keeps blows from hitting me. He is a shield. You think about Abraham. In the Old Testament, this 
<laughs> Genesis 12, God calls Abram to go to a land that he does not know. And Abram believes God. Abram believes the word of God and he goes. And how do things go for Abram? Well, things don't go so well for Abram and Lot. His family immediately seemingly divides. Well, soon after, he follows God in faith. There's division in his family. And then, I believe Genesis 14, Abraham finds himself in the middle of a war between nine kings. This is not the battle of five armies. This is the battle of nine kings. And one of them's name is Chedorlaomer. That guy has to be bad. Chedorlaomer. Nine kings fighting, and they've captured Lot. Things are not going well for Abram, apparently. And what does God say in Genesis 15:1? I am your shield. This is one of the first ways God reveals himself to Abram. I am your shield. That's good to know when you're in the midst of nine kings fighting each other, and you're about to go and rescue or have rescued Lot, confess truth about God. He is a shield. Look what else David says about God. My glory, my glory. Probably the idea is God is the one I boast about. God is the one I boast about. It's common for warriors to boast in their strength or their ability or their power, like what you saw in the example of Goliath. Who does David glory in? David, an incredibly apt man himself. David's good at what he does on the battlefield. David is good at leading men. David is one of these very gifted people. He's good at music. He writes music. He's good on the battlefield. He's just one of these freaks of nature that seemingly is good at everything. But he doesn't glorify himself. He says God is his glory. His boast is in God. I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians 12 where Paul the Apostle talks about Jesus and the reason why he can boast in Jesus in the context of suffering. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We boast in the Lord. David says God is his boast capable, competent, respected man like David. God is my boast. And look at what he says at the end of verse 3, the lifter of my head. The, the head being down, of course, is the, 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 the picture of being downcast. How do, you, how do you come out of depression or being downcast? The Lord is the lifter of my head. David has serious reasons to be depressed. He's gone through a lot of horrors and terrors, but God has been the lifter of his head. This one thing we can pray for people in depression is that God would lift their head. We can know that God is the one who does lift the head. There's a great quote by Charles Spurgeon that I can't get right, but it's a, it's a great quote. If you want it, I'll email it to you, where he talks about um, how depression is something that can't be reasoned with. Being, the, the state of the soul and heart of being downcast isn't something that logic and reasoning 
will usually dispel or change. People who are depressed or downcast, usually it doesn't make any sense why this is the case. And Spurgeon says that the the latch that holds them in gloomy prison needs a divine hand to undo it. We need God to be the lifter of the head. David recounts that about God. He's lifted my head. Verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. That he's been answered by God. One of the things that we confess about God, truth about God, is that he answers us. Amazing, isn't it? Call unto me and I will answer you. Jeremiah 33, 3. God invite, not only does God invite us to call and pray and encourage it regularly, but we see God answers. This encourages David. You're on the run. You've got the sovereign God you can call out to. Not only can you call out to him, but he answers. Verse 5, I lay down and slept. Well, that's odd in the circumstance and situation David's in. You would think this would be one of those seasons in life when you're losing a bit of sleep. Your own son's taking over the kingdom. You're on the run, worried about the safety of your family and your men. And what is David able to do? I lay down and slept. I woke again. I survived it. How and why? The Lord sustained me. The Lord sustained me. He's confessing truth about God. How did David endure? How did he make it? Well, because he's so good at hiding, right? Because he's he's so good at strategy. No, it's the Lord who sustained him. And it's the Lord that we look to for sustenance in the difficult times and in the distresses that do come. David recognizes and confesses it was God who sustained him. And it's so easy, isn't it? And we're so tempted, oftentimes, many of us, to look to our own resources to sustain us. I'll get through this. I'm strong enough. I'll beat this. This is not David. This is not David's attitude. David looks to the Lord as his sustainer and his helper. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the living God. We confess truth about God. Now look what David says finally there at the end of verse 6. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. What a strange statement. I will not be afraid of thousands of people. Not only, it's not just a vague, I will not be afraid, but it's, but it's a, I will not be afraid of something very specific. How about thousands of enemies? Thousands of people literally wanting to kill me. Not afraid of that. Well, that seems insane. They set themselves against me all around. Why in the world is David not afraid of these people? Because of what he just said about God. If God is his shield, he knows that nothing will take his life apart from God's protection. Because of what he knows and confesses about God, he is able to say, I will not be afraid of my enemies. Let me just give you a litany of psalms that reinforce this, friends, that the foundation of what we believe about God, this this is where our confidence comes from. Do you know, do you know the, the etymology of the word confidence? 
It's two Latin words, con fide. I bet you know what those are. Con, with, fide, faith. That's, that's where our word confidence comes from. And, and, and we have confidence in God. That's how he can say something like this. Listen to Psalm 27, 1 through 3 of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me and eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Let me read from Psalm 91. Recently we had the, the remembrance of September 11th. One of these defining events uh, in our lives. One of those events where most people remember where they were and what they were doing when that tragedy happened. I remember the sermon my pastor preached the next Sunday. Bill Cook in Louisville, Kentucky preached Psalm 91 after September 11th. Here's why. Psalm 91, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. And one more of these, Psalm 109. Psalm 109, which we'll use to transition. To the choir master, Psalm of David, be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opening against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate. They attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me. But I give myself to prayer, which he's modeling for us in Psalm 3. What you find here in this section where we're confessing truth about God is David is not only confessing truth about God, David is also recounting the history of the way God has worked in his life. Tangible, real ways God has been at work proving his faithfulness in his life. Now that's helpful to remember and meditate on and pray about when you go through distress. And that's one of the things you find him doing here. And you'll find God's people do it all through the Bible. Certainly there are deliverances in your life where you've been in distress and situations where there, there's so many of these trials, there's not like a a good answer to get out of it. There's not like a solution or you would take the solution. There's just struggle, distress, and really either any choice I make is going to probably just cause more pain. What do you do? Well, one thing you can do is you can remember ways in which God has delivered you in the past. I'm sure we probably all have accounts and stories and incidences in our life like that, and God has proven himself faithful. We're still drawing breath and persevering in the faith by the grace of God, even though a lot of things 
took place that we would never have chosen and that we wouldn't have planned. God has delivered us. And that situation 10 years ago that I don't even think about anymore, that at the time seemed so unbreachable, God brought us through. That's what David's doing here. Nehemiah does it in Nehemiah chapter 9. Stephen does it in Acts chapter 7. And it gets him killed. Because this is one of the reasons why reading the Scripture is so important. Regularly. Hearing the Scripture proclaimed and taught is so important. In as many contexts as you can get it. Because in preaching and teaching, we're reminded about the truth of God. So he confesses truth about God. And then he does what he, he said in Psalm 109. Even though there's evildoers surrounding him, what does he do? Psalm 104, I'm sorry, 109, verse 4, but I give myself to prayer. He calls out to God in prayer in verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Arise, O Lord, is essentially a call for God to go into action. The picture here is calling one who has been an observer to take action. Arise. Stand up. Don't just watch. Go to work. That's what David is asking God to do for him. And notice the prayer, save me, oh my God. David puts the hope of his deliverance in God's hands, which is an important principle for us on many different levels. He calls out to God in prayer. He puts his hope in salvation and deliverance in God's hands. He doesn't care what the people say about there's no salvation of God for him. He trusts in the Lord. Uh, I've shared with you before 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 12, the prayer of Jehoshaphat, (laughs) where I believe there's three foreign enemies that have come against Jerusalem, and on paper they're beat. They're done. His kingship is over. There's calamity and all the bad things that happen when foreign powers invade and they win. That's what it looks like is going to happen. Second Chronicles 20.12 is Jehoshaphat's part of his prayer. Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. David is with 600 men fleeing Jerusalem, dead tired after marching about 23 miles from Jerusalem to the Jordan. And on paper, it looks really bad for David at this point, because essentially all of the rest of the armies of all the tribes of Israel are with Absalom. Everything militarily says David and his 600 are done. Like with the day of Jehoshaphat, We're powerless against this great horde. Only you can do this, God. Save me, oh my God. And then look some of the specifics here in verse 7. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Now look look at the way those blows are described. A strike on the cheek is not a death blow. You know what it is? It's a rebuke. I don't know if you've seen the meme with Batman backhanding Robin (laughs) and then he says all these funny things that's what this is this is what this is like this is like the the spunky rebellious Israelite getting up to the God-ordained king 
asserting himself and just taking a backhand in the face. Except in this case, it's God delivering the backhand. It's not a death blow. And then look what else he says. You break the teeth of the wicked, this analogy. That uh, essentially, in a wild animal, the power of a wild animal is in its teeth. And the breaking of the teeth essentially renders that once dangerous animal impotent and pathetic. Right? What is a, do- what is a vicious dog going to do? Gum you to death? That's what this imagery denotes. It is a removal of their power to do harm. That's the idea. It's not a death blow. It's like an embarrassment upon his enemies. And I think there you see a bit of David's still concern for the people of God, which we'll see more of in the next verse. And you see the passion of David in his prayer. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Verse 8. It's a confession. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. We could look at this and think, correct falsehood with truth. Not only do we call out to God in prayer, not only do we confess truth about God, not only do we confess our troubles to God, we also can correct falsehood with truth. Essentially, this is in response to verse 2. What the, what the enemies are saying, what the many foes are saying, there's no salvation for him in God, verse 8. In correction, in correction, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's not for you to say. It's not for you to say. Salvation belongs to the Lord. When he's surrounded by foes and when he's surrounded by betrayers and adversaries, he confesses salvation belongs to the Lord. And then again, notice his concern, I believe, coming out for the people. Your blessing be on your people. The your people there are the people that are out to get him. And he asks for God's blessing on them. Isn't that amazing? Because he's a king who cares for the welfare of God's people. Just a word about Selah there. You see three of them. Uh, A lot of people structure the Psalms by that. Maybe helpful, I don't know. I don't know because nobody knows what that word means. Most people assume uh, that it means it's some kind of a musical indicator. We just don't know. We understand when we're looking at the Old Testament, we're looking at an ancient document written in an ancient language, and some of the words just are not translated. So that's one of them. So what that means, we don't know. One of the things you find here in David's distress is that it parallels Jonah. Parallels Jonah. Why was Jonah in the predicament he was in in the belly of the fish? Why? Because he disobeyed God. And you get this amazing prayer from Jonah in Jonah, I believe it's chapter 2 or chapter 3. It's Jonah chapter 2. He's in the belly of a fish. What do you do about that circumstance? I mean, he's at the roots of the mountains. How do you get out of that? What's his only hope? Jonah 2.9. Salvation is from the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah quoting David in Psalm 3. Jonah 2.9 is a quotation of Psalm 3.8, where Jonah is reflecting on, I believe, meditating on David's distress and how David was going to endure 
and escape it. He recognized, my only hope is that salvation belongs to the Lord. That was Jonah's only hope for deliverance and salvation was the Lord. And then what happens when Jonah is, by God's command, vomited out of the fish? Where does he go? Does he go to a friendly place? No, he goes to the presence of his enemies, where God had sent him. He's in the presence of his enemies, and he learns salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah didn't want to see the Ninevites saved, but guess what? God saved them to his chagrin. This is not the only place this psalm is quoted. There's two other places I'll share one. Revelation 7.10. We'll look at 7, 9, and 10. This is Revelation 7, 9, and 10. This familiar scene in Revelation of the multitudes around the throne. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So you see it in distress in Psalm 3. You see it in distress in Jonah 2. And you see it in victory, confessed in Revelation chapter 7. Just a few final reflections on this. One of the things we know about Psalm 3 is this is a specific kind of distress. A specific kind of distress. The distress in Psalm 3 is David's distress caused as a result of his sin. Again, similar to Jonah, which teaches us and is instructive in the fact that the consequences of our sins does not mean the end of our usefulness to the Lord. David has done some horrible, wrong, sinful things, abusing his position and his power and people. And yet, under the judgment of God, his usefulness is not at its end. Witness Psalm 3. How many people throughout history have been helped by Psalm 3? Born out of a result of David enduring the consequences of his sin, which, mind you, will be part of our life. Just unlike David's case, we're not always going to know when the distresses I'm facing are a result of my sin. We just typically don't know that. It's always a good place to go. Three final lessons here. Number one, these are pretty obvious. Pray in distress. It's what you have here. One of the ways, again, I think prayer functions is it reminds us of who God is. Again, it's, I believe prayer is more for us. It's something we engage in. And it's good to, be remind, it's good to remind yourself of who God is, isn't it? Especially in distress. Because usually the way we're wired, our focus is on the distress or the circumstance we can't change. But in prayer, what do we do? We confess truth about God. That's why when you study biblical prayers, almost all of them contain within them confession about what God is like or what God has done. And this is so helpful in prayer. When we're facing distress, Lord, you rule over all. God, you are good. Lord, my sins are not a result of you. They're a result of my own desire and me giving into temptation. God, you are merciful. God, I know you are holy. God, you are steadfast in your love. Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. 
We confess these truths about God, and essentially it recalibrates our perspective or helps to do so. Our perspective that is so shaped by our experience and oftentimes our pain reminds us there's more to the story than that. That there is a sovereign God over all who designs our good and who will save us and bring us through. Prayer reminds us what we believe about God. It shifts the attention away from the opponents onto the omnipotent. What can man do to me? You you can pray with Psalm 118, what can man do to me? Because the Lord is on your side. You pray when you're in distress. It reminds you, it reassures you. And I think this fuels our faith and our prayer. Secondly, sing in distress. Isn't it fascinating? You have inspired songs in the Bible. What does David do as a result of surviving this distress with Absalom? He writes a song. So if you're a songwriter, take note. Put some poetry together for the glory of God that exalts him, that follows the patterns you see in Scripture of recounting your troubles, right? There's a reason why people like country music. Don't really understand it, but there's a reason. Part of it may be a recounting of troubles. You sing and can sing when in distress, or you can write a song, a poem set to music for God's people to sing for times of distress. Singing also, like prayer, reminds us of truth about God. You think about a song, a hymn like Be Thou My Vision. And what that song says, Thou and Thou only first in my heart. There's something I need to be reminded of every Sunday and every day. I don't wake up thinking Thou and Thou only first in my heart. But when I sing it, and when I hear the saints of God sing it, and I hear it in this loud, powerful force of people's voices saying it together in unison, it reminds me... (laughs) Yeah, I remember, thou and thou only first in my heart. Get my mind straight off the world and on to God and on to his work. Singing is powerful. It's one of the best songs express truth about God, who he is, what he's done. Calls to conviction, calls to commitment. We sing in distress. It's what Psalm 3 is. It's a song born distress. For God's people to sing in the crucible of distress. Thirdly, pray in distress, sing in distress. Thirdly, write in distress. It's what David does. Writing reinforces our faith, right? Writing clarifies our beliefs and our thinking and our decisions. It can be hard sometimes to formulate our thoughts just by thinking, but with a pen or a pencil in your hand, by writing it down, it helps you Think through, again, what you're going to do based on what you believe. This is who I am. This is what I'm going to do. Regardless, I'm going to be faithful. Putting it down, writing it down helps. Just take a psalm like Psalm 3 and copy it. I've always wanted to just copy 2 Timothy. That'd be a good project for a pastor. Really should be required writing for every pastor. Once a year, you write down 2 Timothy. 
One of the things this shows us too, and this is the final point. <clears throat> Many are rising against me. These are, you understand who this is. This is David. People wrote songs about David's power. David's famous. David's famous. <clears throat> songs have been written about how great of a warrior he is. And, and now what are the people doing? Those people that used to sing about David's greatness and how awesome he is, they're out to kill him now. The crowds are fickle. This is just the nature of people. Being rem remembering that is important and helpful. The same thing happened to Jesus our Lord, or a similar thing. In bizarre fashion, he's coming into Jerusalem in a way that nobody at the time rightly and fully understands. And what are the people shouting? Hosanna, which incidentally means deliver us. And they've got the palm branches waving them, like the expectation of a returning king or prince or famous pilgrim or teacher. But then that same week, that same week, it's going to be the crowds that are manipulated and that persuade Pilate to crucify him. Many are rising against me. David's hope, joy, satisfaction, desire is not wrapped up in the crowd. It's wrapped up in God and pleasing him. And may it be so for us. Let's pray together. God, help us not to rely on fleeting helps like that provided by people or worldly means, but help us to rely on you. God, and as we face our troubles, help us to bring them to you, casting all of our cares on you, for you care for us. And God, help us to confess the glorious truths of your rule and your power and your might and your goodness. Help us to learn truth about you, God, and then weave it into our prayers and confessions. And Lord, help us to call out to you and recognize you as our only hope and source of deliverance from distress. And God, we just pray you would deliver us. And we recognize that salvation belongs to you. And God, that you brought and sent salvation through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who himself was a suffering servant, who suffered at the hands of evil men, crucified under Pontius Pilate, raised again from the dead. And we worship him now in spirit and in truth. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together, friends. That, that, is, that is the greatest need of all when we encounter distress. You need God, and the, the, the way to God is through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The way to God has been made possible by God in sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Our sins would separate us from the Lord, but Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, shedding His blood as a sacrifice. He was raised up from the dead to, to demonstrate and prove that He was who He said He was. God raised Him up, validating Him, vindicating Him, as the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, surely returning to judge all. And the call is to trust Him to forgive you of your sins, to repent of your sin, to turn from it, and to turn to Jesus Christ in faith. And then you are brought into a fellowship of God's people who 
strive to help you live out the faith in the Word of God. So if you have questions about believing in Jesus, being saved, being a Christian, friends, tonight is the night to talk about it. Don't leave tonight with lingering questions about your eternal soul and eternal state. Be glad to stay over tonight and, and just show you what the Bible says about how you can know the salvation of God. And as Christians, let's learn from David's example of faith in times of distress.